0: Mark chapter 15 and it should appear yes on the screen very early in the morning the chief priests with the elders the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision they bound Jesus led him away and handed him over to Pilate are you the king of the Jews asked Pilate yes it is as you say Jesus replied the chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is God's word.
1: Thanks, Daniel. Good morning. It's good to see you. Good to see you in the room. Uh, I trust you're there on YouTube as well. Welcome if you're joining us remotely from wherever that may be around the world. It is Easter, it's that funny time where uh, people hit the great escape button if they can and, and go to different places. So it's great to see you if you are those left behind. It's lovely to have you with us this morning. In Mark chapter 15 verses 1 to 15, for the first time Jesus is now not standing before the religious leaders. He's not standing before the high priest. That was uh, chapter 14, when Jesus was asked the question, are you the Christ? Are you God's long anointed king? That was Jesus in act one, you could say, of his, his trial, the sham trial that the Lord Jesus is experiencing. Chapter 14, Jesus before the high priest. Now it's Jesus Jesus before Pilate, that's where our attention is drawn in chapter 15. And from the religious sphere, we now move to the political sphere. Now Christianity and politics is a little bit like oil and water. The two don't really join very well. But uh, chapter 15 and the three questions... That Pilate asked Jesus, do act as a sort of lens like you would experience if you were a a spectacle wearer or if you've been to Specsavers in the more recent past. Chapter 15 verses 1 to 15 act like a lens for us to understand Christianity and politics. They act like a lens for us to understand Jesus and politics. It's not oil and water. You can be a Christian and engage wisely in the political realm. But look at these three questions that Jesus is asked in the political realm. Chapter 15, verse 2, Pilate says, Are you king of the Jews? Verse 4, Pilate says, Why aren't you fighting back to these claims that you're being uh, wrestled with against in a verbal sense? Verse 12, Pilate asks the crowd, What shall we do with the king?" So you get these three questions that are asked in a different way to the question that is asked in the religious uh, sphere in chapter 14. Now Pilate is saying, I don't care about your religious claims, but I'm very interested and I have a vested interest about your political claims. Are you an opponent of mine? Are you a king, but in a political sense? What's your attitude to power, Jesus? That's another way to paraphrase what's happening in chapter 15. And it's through this lens we're going to see Jesus' understanding of church and government, Jesus' understanding of himself and politics. Three questions, and so three answers that we're going to consider. Three questions, three answers. Uh, The first one is the uh, the first question is in verse 2, and that's where we see Jesus' answer following as well. And Jesus answers in a very ambiguous way an ambiguous way. What do I mean? Verse 2, Pilate says again, are you king of the Jews? Are you in any way, shape, fashion or form a political leader? What's your attitude to power, Jesus? That's another way we could understand it. And Jesus answers in a very deliberately ambiguous way in a way that he did not answer when he's asked a religious question back in chapter 14. Remember chapter 14, verse 61? You might like to look across the page. When Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, when he's before the religious elite, the question comes, chapter 14, verse 61, are you the Christ? Are you the King? And Jesus says, absolutely, I am. And he gives them more than they bargained for. Not just I am, which is very significant from the Old Testament we learnt a few weeks ago. Jesus makes this great claim to say, I am, but I'm also the son of man. I'm the one before whom you have to give account. I am the judge of the living and the dead. I am the judge who makes no wrong decision. Every decision I make is right. I've got all the evidence in front of me and because i'm the judge of all the earth because i'm the son of all the son of man that means that you can have absolute confidence in me you don't need to fear injustice because there is a day of absolute certainty and justice that's coming but here in chapter 15 verse 2 jesus is asked a direct question are you the king of the jews and he is deliberately ambiguous he says simply well you Say it, and there's an emphasis on the you there. You say it, it is as you say. Now, Jesus could have said something like this He could have said, Well, of course, I'm not a political leader, I'm a spiritual leader. I'm interested in the human heart, I've come to take away sin. He could have answered like that, or he could have flipped it around and said, Well, yes, I am a political leader, I'm not really a spiritual person. And if you think of the main religions in the world, there's no ambiguity in how the religious leaders of the world answer this question with their attitude to politics or their attitude to power. If you ask Buddha, are you a political leader? Buddha would say no, I'm all spiritual. If you ask Muhammad, are you a political leader? Yes, I am. I'm interested in leading a movement. If you ask Jesus, are you a political leader? The answer is clear, yes and no. Jesus is ambiguous. When it comes to this, now what do I mean? Look, there's another passage in Mark chapter 12, where Jesus is very ambiguous, but he talks about his attitude to power. He talks about the appropriate reach of government, should we say. There is a coin in Mark chapter 12 that Jesus takes up and uses as a visual illustration. He says, should we pay taxes to Caesar? There's the great big question of the age. Should we pay allegiance and taxes to the political power of the day that was the Roman Empire? And Jesus says ever so wisely, yes and no. How does he say that? He says, well, whose image is on the coin? Has someone, has someone got a coin? Can you show me whose image is on the coin? Well, Caesar's. And so Jesus, of course, says, now in infamy, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar." And to God, the things that are God's, deliberately ambiguous. Why? Because if you looked on a denarius, there was an inscription. And inscription that says the Roman Empire required and demanded absolute allegiance, total allegiance, no limited state. Governments in the time of Jesus, like the one that Tiberius, king of the Roman Empire, ruler of the Roman Empire, whose name and inscription was on the denarius, said this and thought this. Tiberius, it said, Tiberius king, on every denarius, Tiberius king, son of God. So the emperor of the Roman Empire claimed to have divinity. He claimed not just to be human, he claimed to be divine. And as a divine ruler of their understanding of the Roman Empire, they demanded and commanded absolute allegiance. Everything the Roman Empire said should be Written down and taken as lit. No idea of limited state, no idea of an issue of conscience or an issue of abstinence or a difference of opinion. What the emperor said went. It was complete dictatorship. Human rights doesn't exist in the Roman Empire. Protest doesn't exist in the Roman Empire. If you protest, you will be crushed without mercy. And Jesus, as much as we can tell from the history books, is the first leader who says, no, that's overreaching. When you have a great political empire, whether it be Babylon in history past, whether it be Persia, whether it be Rome, whether it be the Egyptian empire, it was complete and total and utter allegiance required. And Jesus says, no, that's overreaching. Has anyone got a coin? This is my understanding of power and politics and government. There's an absolute appropriate place for government and rule and wise decision-making by men and women in that leadership. But if they overstep the mark, then there is a time when you should say no respectfully. Whose image is on the coin? Well, pay taxes then to Caesar because he's worthy of taxes. But... Don't let government overreach. Don't agree if a government goes beyond God's law, if they contradict what God says, then God must come first. So give to Caesar what Caesar's, give him the taxes that are his due. But what image is on you, says Jesus, on every man, woman and child, no matter what their age, no matter what the colour of their skin, no matter what culture they grow up in or are from, they bear the image of God. So God deserves to be... Number one, give to God what is God's and give to the government or Caesar what is Caesar. Jesus is deliberately ambiguous. That was revolutionary. No one said what Jesus said. I mean, there were two groups of people, two uh, groups of Jewish people, the uh, Essenes and the Zealots. The Essenes said, well, this is our understanding of power. When it comes to power, power is evil. So withdraw, all true Christians will withdraw. They will become hermits. They will live in the desert." Power is, a, is an unhelpful thing. Don't engage with it. It's impure, all this political stuff. Retreat. But then there were the zealots. And the zealots said, no, no, power and influence is what we need as an early church. So go and get hold of power. Do whatever it takes. They were zealous to take power and rule in God's name. And Jesus says this, understand power. Understand political power. Political power is a penultimate power. It's not the ultimate power. Don't try and rule God's world from government, office, whatever country you're in. It's inadequate. It's an adequate vehicle for the enormous changes that my revolution is about to bring in. And that's why Jesus answers so ambiguously. Is Jesus political? Is he interested in power? Absolutely. But he sees its limitations and it's a penultimate power. So if that's right, and Jesus' answers is kind of ambiguous. Are you king of the Jews? Well, yes. Are you interested in politics and power? Well, yes, but also no. That's not what's going to limit and define my rule and reign. So if that's true, how does uh, Christianity engage with power and politics? Well, that's the next answer to the next question that Jesus is asked and answers. look down at this revolutionary answer. Look at verse 3 and 4. We read here what the chief priests were accusing Jesus of many times. And Pilate says, well, hey, aren't you going to answer to these claims? Aren't you going to defend yourself? I mean, don't you hear what they're accusing you of, says Pilate to Jesus. And Look at verse 5. Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now that word amazed is really interesting. I hadn't seen this before this week. Often you... Uh, I read that as, as Pilate thinking, Jesus, you're such a fool. Why don't you speak? Why don't you defend yourself? Why don't you uh, answer some of these questions with some of the claims that, that I hear about you? You could get yourself off. I think that's in Pilate's mind. But Pilate, when he says he was amazed at Jesus' response, it's actually a word, not of you fool for not saying anything. It's actually a word for wonder. It's actually a word for Pilate being absolutely staggered by the, the quiet poise that Jesus is embodying by leaving his reputation to his Father. He's absolutely amazed. And so it's, a, it's a positive word. It's a, a, it, Pilate is marvelling at the character of Jesus demonstrated in his silence, in his understanding of a, a personal peace and poise that he has. Every revolution that has happened There's been a leader, a man or a woman in a chariot or on a horseback or a, a tank. They've had generals that have done their bidding for them. That's always how a revolution begins. Revolution happens when you destroy your enemies. And Jesus says, I have an understanding of power that is revolutionary because I will not destroy my enemies, I will forgive them. I'm going to create a new empire where my enemies are loved and forgiven. And so Pilate, I'm sure, sees in Jesus' lack of defence, this personal peace that he has, and this pattern for using power that came out in his followers in the first few centuries of the Roman Empire and of the Christian church. I mean, how does Jesus' followers understand from the lips of Jesus How do they respond to those in need? How do they live with the understanding of the gospel in the first two centuries when it was all power, when it was all Rome, where allegiance to Rome was absolute? Well, here's some examples. There's a book that I was reflecting on this week, uh, The Rise of Christianity. It looks at the lessons that you can learn by a man called Rodney Stark about the Greco-Roman world, the first 200 years of church life. Huge changes happened in a pagan society, in a Roman society, where anything went. Here are some examples. In most of the cities of the Roman Empire, there was a ratio, male to female, of 140 men to 100 women. And why did that happen? Because in Roman society, husbands, fathers, if they, their wives gave birth to women, or to, sorry, to girls, they would dispose of them. They were willingly uh, able, under their conscience, to dispose of the girls that their wives had given birth to. Ultimately, girls are not worth very much. So, we're going to commit uh, infanticide. We're going to kill our children because it's too much hard work. That was an understanding in the pagan worldview where God was not known or named. You've got to feed them. Ultimately, it's not worth having girls. Let's just get rid of them, let's throw them out into the streets. And it was legal in the Roman Empire to do that. That's a horrifying thing. How does the gospel apply to that? Well, the Christian church grew in part because the gospel has absolutely no place for infanticide. No place for killing any unborn child. No place for killing those just born either. Christians wouldn't have any of that. And so they willingly went and rescued children from the streets and raised them as their own. That's one of the differences that the gospel made in the first two centuries. It wasn't just girls that were vulnerable, it was also women. Women in the pagan society, the Roman Empire. When you were married, it was required that women were to be sexually pure, sexually faithful to their husbands. The husbands, on the other hand, can do whatever they liked. They could have mistresses, they could be promiscuous. There's a double standard. How does the gospel apply to that in the first two centuries and even today? Christianity said none of that anymore. Women have dignity. Women flock to Christianity because they saw a humanity and a respect for women that was not there in Roman society. And the social order began to change within the first two centuries. Because women saw here is a religion where women are honoured and protected And they flocked to it, and Christianity exploded around the Roman Empire. Christians also loved the poor. There's a letter from the Emperor Julian, and uh, he really hated Christianity. He was very upset because Christianity was growing and growing and growing exponentially. And he wrote this in one of his letters to one of his friends. Our religion is not prospering. The Christian religion is growing and growing. Why don't we realise how much Christianity's success is due down to their radical care for the poor they don't just care for their own they care for other people as well this is what happened when verse 5 is implemented in the heart of the church Pilate was amazed at the poise of Jesus and the attitude to his own power that Jesus had and it changes people they see a need and they're willing to meet the need no matter what it costs here is Jesus not giving his rights, not doing what he uh, was enabled to do. But And so the church could say, I can handle loss of my comfort in the first two centuries and beyond. I can handle loss of my own peace. I can handle uh, loss of my own money. I can even handle the loss of my life if it means that other people prosper and thrive. They looked at the social needs of the time. They looked at the sick, the poor, the needy, the vulnerable. They looked at the women. They looked at the needs of the city and they just poured themselves out in the first two centuries and the gospel exploded throughout the Roman Empire. They didn't idolise power. They didn't idolise position or reputation. They looked at the sick people in their community and they met their needs no matter what the cost. They looked at the children and they rescued them because they were vulnerable. They looked at the women and they welcomed them in and they valued them and honoured them. They loved them. They drew them in. And that changed society. It's love that changes societies. It's the attitude to power with this ambiguous answer and this revolutionary answer where Jesus did not hold on to his power. He did not feel need to defend himself. But he willingly stood there before Pilate saying, I have an attitude to power that you won't understand. It's all about a revolutionary kingdom that I'm bringing to bear. And as you see that in the first two centuries, and if you're a Christian here this morning, it's incredibly challenging. When so much of our identity is what's in our bank account or where we live, so much of our identity is concerned with our own comfort and our own reputation. I don't know if I could behave like that, you might be thinking. It's pretty scary, it's pretty costly, it's pretty risky. Well, the third point gets to the heart of why we can do this and behave in this way as Christians. It's not just ambiguous, it's not just revolutionary. The third question and the third answer explains where we get the power to live in this way, motivationally, in a substitutionary answer. Bit of a long word, what do I mean? Look at verse 12. Pilate turns to the crowd and basically says, well, what do I do with this man who's the king of the Jews? Did you notice that they ignore the question? Verse 12, what should I do with Jesus? Verse 13 is the answer. Crucify him. Verse 14, paraphrasing why. What has this man done? Verse 14, just crucify him. We know he's innocent, but we want him dead. We want him out of the way. And Jesus is is one of two men before Pilate. Jesus the innocent Barabbas the guilty and they say switch we want Jesus to be treated as the guilty one we know Barabbas is guilty but we want you to treat him as if he's innocent put the innocent where the guilty should be and we want you to put the guilty where the innocent should be crucified we don't care what the question is we just want Jesus crucified Now Mark, the Gospel writer, is showing us what the death of Jesus is all about. It's all about substitution. It's all about substitution. Jesus is there. The claim of the Christian message is Jesus died in our place where we should have died, taking the punishment that we deserve. For all the wrath of God was upon Christ when it should have been directed towards us. He's taken our evil upon himself so that we can be treated the way Jesus deserves to be treated. He stood in our place. It's the principle of substitution. At the very heart of the Christian understanding of salvation is not a leader who is astride a horse or leading a tank charge. At the heart of Christianity is an understanding of salvation where Jesus loses his power so that we might receive his blessing. Our death to himself, our sickness to himself, so that his righteousness can come to us, his forgiveness can come to us, his reputation can come to us, his wealth can come to us, with all our sin going to him. The principle of substitution. And when the Christians saw that in the first two centuries, they said something like this. The only way I can help the poor out of their poverty As if I become poor. The only way I can help the sick to become well is if I'm willing to risk getting sick. The only way I can help the dying is if I'm willing to die myself. Why? Because Jesus was prepared to do that for me. That's the bottom line of substitution. When you understand it, not just mentally, but when you understand it in your heart, when you see what Jesus has done for you, The cash value of that is that you're willing to step into other people's situations of pain and difficulty and need so that they might step into your place. You're willing to substitute your reputation for theirs, your financial security for theirs, even your health and time and comfort for theirs and so on. When you understand substitution, Jesus dying in our place, it makes you radical uh, instruments for change in a societal sense. I read a sermon this morning week by a man called Tom Skinner. I'm just going to steal a paragraph from it. He says this, Jesus came to change the system. So they arrested him. So now the Romans had two revolutionaries locked up. One was called Barabbas, one was called Jesus. And it's around a festivity time. And so Pilate stands out before the Jews with these two prisoners and says, you know how around this time of year, I get very generous and I want you to know that I love you Jewish people. Now I'm going to release for you one of these two, Barabbas or Jesus. Which one do you want? It's not a question for Pilate about what sort of revolution there's going to be because they're both revolutionaries. It's just a question of which one. Over here I've got Barabbas. He's been burning down the system. He's an insurrectionist. He's like a, a terrorist of sorts. He's been killing people. Do you want him? Over here I have Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God. I've interrogated him. All I can tell is that because of him, some people are alive, who would have died. Some people are blind, but now they're seeing. Some people that couldn't hear, now they can hear. And he fed a few thousand people. Which one should I release, Jesus or Barabbas? And they all shouted, give us Barabbas. Now why did they shout, we want Barabbas? Because you can always stop a Barabbas like revolution. You just send out a few hundred soldiers and you bring him in again. But how do you stop Jesus? How do you stop him? How do you stop Jesus? Well, they nailed him to a cross, thinking that will be the end of it. He's just a political radical. He's got strange, ambiguous views to power. But Jesus was the answer to the human dilemma. He took our sin upon himself, And the cross did not defeat him. When he rose from the dead, the Bible calls him a a new man, the second Adam, the leader of a new creation, who's overthrown the existing order and wants to establish a new order that will not be built on an understanding of human power. Every other revolution, Russia, Persia, South America, France, every century, there's always a, a new attitude to power. But Jesus wants to turn all those attitudes upside down. i am not come here to destroy the enemies. This revolution comes into power through the forgiveness of enemies. Jesus, are you political? Yes, I am. No, I'm not. He's the most political and the least political leader. So he says yes and no. And so he answers in this very ambiguous, complicated And yet, truth filled answer. He loves people, but he's very ambiguous when it comes to power.